Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, I am excited to begin a new book together with you this morning. So as we mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. If you don't know where Ruth is, it's the eighth uh, book of the Bible. So you can just kind of uh, go to the beginning of your Bible and work your way up a little bit to find the book of Ruth. And uh, as you're turning there, we invite any children who may be participating in our children's class uh, to make your way. You can uh, uh, meet our volunteers that will be there to greet you at the back uh, and to teach you and to instruct, and to instruct you uh, in the Lord's Word together with you there this morning. But as I mentioned, if everyone else could be turning to uh, Ruth chapter 1. Um, normally we read the entire uh, passage we're preaching on uh, before uh, uh, at this point and then go into the sermon. But what I want to do is just read the first five verses for us this morning. And then as we work our way through during the sermon, uh, we'll read each additional section of this story. So let me read for us from Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 and then we'll pause and take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help as we dive into the truth of his word together this morning. Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. And the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray together. Father, right now we just want to take a moment once again to ask for your help as we come before the truth of your word, as we begin a new book together this morning. Father, I pray that you would be just at work in us by the power of your spirit this morning. We first and foremost want to thank you for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. It is only because of his perfect righteous life, his all-sufficient death, his glorious resurrection, and the life that he now lives, that we have any hope this morning. We are thankful that by your grace to us, for all those who have trusted in Christ, you have sent your spirit to dwell in us. And because of your spirit within us, Father, we uh, can understand your word. We can read it together this morning. We can pray it together and sing it together and be filled with hope and joy in the reality of who you are in your character and in your nature and in the glorious truths of the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that very thing within us as we look at this first chapter of Ruth together this morning. Father, I ask that the truths you intend to teach us would, 
would anchor deep into our hearts. Promise us to trust your faithfulness even in the midst of what seems to be hopeless suffering and tragedy. I pray that you would use this book to prepare us to uh, suffer well when that time may come in our lives, that you would help us to see that we need to fix our eyes on you and to remember your faithfulness even when it seems like there's no, uh, there's no human reason to hope at all. And so, Father, I pray that you would be at work in us, shaping us, conforming us to the likeness of Christ. I pray that you would be at work in us for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. Father, protect me this morning from saying anything that is untrue of you. And I pray that you would lead us into all truth. And we pray all this together in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of my favorite hymns is... God moves in a mysterious way. Uh, the whole song is powerful, but uh, one of my favorite verses from that song says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. But what I want to focus on is that first line, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Uh, that hymn was written by William Cooper, uh, a man who lived in the 1700s and struggled with depression essentially his entire life. In fact, when he was young and advancing in his uh, legal career at the age of 32, he became so overwhelmed. Uh, he, uh, we believe for the first time, though there were other times in his life, uh, he attempted suicide. And as a result, he was put into an asylum where by God's grace he was treated by a Christian doctor who faithfully ministered to him, pointed him to the truths of the gospel, and it was there in the asylum that Cooper came to Christ. It was a, it was a gift of God's grace to William Cooper that this man was there to care for him because at that point in his life he thought he was beyond hope. How could God save him and love a man like him who had attempted to take his own life? But nevertheless, there the, the doctor convinced William Cooper of the love of Christ. And so eventually he was able to be released from the asylum. And it was there that he got involved in a local church where he was pastored by John Newton. The John Newton you all know of as the a man who wrote the, uh, probably the most well-known hymn uh, in the English language anyway, uh, Amazing Grace. John Newton was a faithful local pastor, and for, uh, again, essentially the rest of Cooper's life, Newton was a faithful friend, faithful mentor. Even when Newton moved to a different church, he stayed in contact with Cooper, continually writing him letters and encouraging him uh, in the faith. And those two men together wrote numerous hymns that we still sing today. And one of those hymns was the one I mentioned God moves in a mysterious way that William Cooper wrote. William Cooper, though he, for the rest of his life, would have deep seasons of depression and struggles that Newton would have to, by could not judge the him out of, nevertheless, 
Cooper was able to continually see that we should not judge the Lord by feeble sense, that even in the midst of those struggles, even in the midst of that depression, the Lord was at work in his life. The Lord used that to connect him with the faithful man who taught him the gospel. The Lord used that to have him pen numerous hymns like there is a fountain and God moves in a mysterious way that we in the church still sing today because of William Cooper's faithfulness. And that line that he wrote, judge not the Lord by feeble sense in many ways, captures perfectly what's happening here in Ruth chapter 1. But of course, that's much easier to do when you're standing outside the story and you know the end, right? And it's so important to remember that as we read through what's happening here in Ruth chapter 1, as we just read all the tragedy that came into Ruth's life, uh, or sorry, into Naomi's life, as she and her husband went to Moab to seek provision for their family, and her husband died, and her two sons died, and she was left there feeling all alone, that she didn't know the end of the story she didn't know how things were going to work out. And we have the privilege of, of having the, the, the big picture, of having the divine word on what God was accomplishing in the midst of it. Ruth didn't know, uh, Naomi and Ruth didn't know any of those details in the moment. But we are to read this story in light of the end of the story. Psalm chapter 1 tells us that we are to meditate over the scriptures day and night which means we are to read them over and over again. And so, yes, we should read it and we should know the end of the story and then we should go back and read it again, knowing the end of the story and seeing how God is at work even when Naomi can't see it herself. To know how he is at work even in the midst of this tragedy because you see, if you, if you turn to the end of the story, so if you turn to Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, you see where this story is heading. And it says in Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. This him is the, the son, the eventual son of Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And it says, The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. This was Naomi's grandson. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's the big picture. That's the end of the story. That even in the midst of this suffering, God was faithfully keeping his promises. The promise he made beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he told the serpent that one day a seed of Eve, an offspring of Eve, would crush his head. And we read throughout the Old Testament, even up to even before Ruth, how God has faithfully kept that promise. The, the, the offspring and the seed of Eve went from Eve to Seth, and from Seth to Noah, and from Noah to Abraham and from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob and then through Jacob to the 12 tribes but specifically to the tribe of Judah from which a king would arise and from the tribe of Judah through Naomi to her daughter-in-law Ruth would come King David but he only came through the suffering that Naomi had to endure so when I say we should judge not the Lord by feeble sense, that's what I mean. Naomi didn't know exactly what God was doing, and so we'll see that she dives into just deep desperation and hopelessness. 
But even as we see this, we can learn that God is at work bringing about an extraordinary redemption, even through this tragedy, even through this suffering. And we can be reminded that God is always at work for the good of his redeemed children and for the glory of his name. Now, while we see the sovereign hand of the Lord showing overwhelming kindness and bringing about his promises through tragedy, I also just want to remind us we need to learn from Naomi's mistakes and the way she dealt with tragedy. Certainly, we need to learn from that and, and, and be corrected in a way to not repeat her view of things. But yet, at the same time, we must be empathetic toward her and continually remember that she didn't know the end of the story that we know. Even as we read through Ruth chapter 1. And so I want us to, to step through uh, this story in chapter 1 uh, through, through five different sections of this narrative. So here's the general outline, and we'll work them through one at a time. First, we're going to see what, what I'm referring to as the emptying of Naomi, because later Naomi would say that she has been emptied. So the emptying of Naomi to Naomi's hopelessness. Number three... Ruth's loyal love. Number four, a misunderstanding of providence. And number five, reasons for hope. So let's begin in verses one through five, which we just read before we prayed together and see the emptying of Naomi. Verse one sets up the time frame for when the book of Ruth takes place. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So that gives us a chronology of when this is happening. It was in the days when the judges ruled. Now, it's important to remember when we read Old Testament books that, that the time in which the story takes place is not the time in which it was written. So we know from what we just read of chapter 4, verse 17, that <clears throat> the book of Ruth was written at some point after David became king. Because the author knows that David becomes a king. He knows the genealogy that flows through Ruth's life. And so this is written after the, it's written after the time of the judges looking back on what occurred. It was probably written in a time of <clears throat> of darkness and even desperation in the time of Israel. It was probably in one of the times when God was bringing judgment on his people. And the author of Ruth wanted to remind God's people that God is faithful, even in the midst of tragedy, that he's faithful to keep his promises, even when hope seems to be lost, even when there's this seeming darkness over the land, God is faithful and God is at work. All that's captured in this sense of in the days when the judges ruled. Because I remind you of what life was like for Israel in those early days, in the days of the Judges. If you read the book of Judges, it is a frustrating book to read. The book of Judges is just a continual cycle of disobedience and rebellion from God's people. They forget about God's kindness, his faithfulness. They turn their back on him. They rebel against him. God brings judgment, brings other nations to attack them. He brings his judgment on them. That judgment awakens them to their sin. 
they turn and repent and cry out to God for help. He raises up a judge to deliver them from the oppressing nation. He delivers them. Things go well for a very brief amount of time. And then they start rebelling again. They're in disobedience again. They're turning their back on God again. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping the idols of other countries. God brings his judgment on them. They cry out. He brings a judge, delivers them from the oppression. They disobey again over and over and over and over and over again for hundreds of years. This is the cycle they go through. And it was in the midst of one of those cycles when the book of Ruth takes place. Now, it's probably early on in the book of Judges, in the time of the Judges, that this takes place. And the reason we, we know that is because we know from Matthew chapter 1, uh, uh, where the, Matthew repeats the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Abraham. And as Matthew goes through the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Abraham, he tells us that Boaz, who, and, and Boaz is the name of the man eventually who Ruth will marry, tells us that Boaz was the son of Rahab. So Rahab is, if you are familiar with what happens in Joshua, when the people are finally coming into the promised land, they're coming to take down Jericho, and they send a couple of spies in to check out Jericho, and they meet Rahab in that section of the Bible. She's referred to as Rahab the prostitute. These two men meet her, and she, she hides the men. She's fearful of the God of Israel. She hides the men there so that they're not captured and makes a deal with them and says, look, I, I, we've heard of your God and what he's doing to the nations around us. Uh, will you please, because of my kindness to you, rescue me and my family when you come so that we are not destroyed? And the men keep their promises. Rahab is spared. And apparently at that point, she becomes a part of the nation of Israel. So these are the early days of the establishment of Israel when Rahab is there. Rahab gives birth to Boaz, and then Boaz appears here as an older man in the book of Ruth. So this would have been very early in the days of Judges. But what's fascinating as we tie all these things together is that though Rahab was probably deceased at the time of this book, because Boaz was an older man at the time of this book, even, that, even though she would have been deceased, when Ruth later marries Boaz, uh, by family tree, Rahab would have been Ruth's mother-in-law. It's a staggering thing to think about how God moves in mysterious ways, that we should not judge him by feeble sense, how he weaves these intricate ways of providence and his sovereignty to bring about his promises and to sustain his people. So here, early in the days of the judges, there is darkness and they, uh, there's darkness and there's judgment. And it's in the midst of one of these cycles that there in verse 1, there is famine in the land. Now, there's nothing mentioned here about this being a direct judgment from God. But we do know that God had promised his people as they entered the promised land, if you're faithful to me, I will provide rains for your crops. I will give you what you need to be sustained. And so the very fact that there is famine in the land tells us that this was a period of God's judgment against his people. There was no food because his people were in disobedience. 
And so it is in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And because of that famine, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And then we're given the names of these people, as we read earlier. Elimelech is the husband of Naomi. They had two sons, Malon and Kilion. Now, we're then told not long after they arrive, um, you see that there in verse 3, not long after they arrive, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And then, uh, not long after that, her sons marry, but uh, they're there about 10 years, but then verse 5 tells us that after 10 years that even her sons died. So her sons marry Orpah and Ruth, and then 10 years of living there, and then even her sons die. So they go to the land of Moab, Elimelech dies, her sons marry Moabite women, and they die. Her sons die, and of the four who originally went to Moab to escape the famine, only one is left, namely Naomi. Now, we're not told why Elimelech died or what happened. We're not told why Malon or Kilion died, and so... We should be cautious about stating reasons why or pronouncing judgment. But it is clear, and I will say, that they were in sin. Elimelech was in sin to go to Moab. They were not supposed to go and live among a people who worshiped false gods. They were not supposed to unite themselves with people who worshiped false gods. They should not have, Malon and Kilion should not have married Moabite women. That was sinful. It was against God's law. They should not have done it. So whether their deaths were a, uh, an act of God's judgment against them for those things, we don't know. We can't know with certainty. But what we do know is that these actions were sinful acts on the part of Elimelech to lead his family into Moab. It was sinful for Malon and Kilion to marry these women. And yet, even in the midst of the darkness... Even in the midst of this tragedy, even in the midst of this disobedience, what the book of Ruth tells us is that God is still at work, keeping his promises and at work to redeem all of mankind by sustaining the promised seed that would come, that had come from Eve. Now, it's not hard to see that this is a tragic and terrible situation for Naomi. And I don't want us to read over that too quickly. I want us to be sure we fully appreciate just how devastating this would have been for her. There's so many um, provisions in our country in particular, in our culture in particular, that people can fall back on when tragedy strikes. But I just want to remind us that in this time period, in this culture, Naomi would have literally been impoverished. She would have had nothing. Men were the ones who were able to work. They were able to produce an income. They were able to care for their family. Th that opportunity just did not exist for women. That was not an option for Naomi. They had to be cared for by relatives who were men, whether it's a husband or if their husband died, it was their sons who would take care of them or even grandsons who would take care of them or other immediate family. But here is Naomi 
left without any provision of her husband caring for her, left without any provision of her sons to care for her. And on top of all that, she's in a foreign land where there is no covenant promise among God's people to care for her. She is destitute and hopeless in this moment. There are seemingly zero opportunities for her to build any kind of support system through extend, extended family and friends. We see in verse 21 of chapter 1 that she, when she finally returns to Bethlehem that we'll see later, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. That's why I refer to this section, verses 1 through 5, as the emptying of Naomi. And it's important just to stop here and say, Naomi had every reason in the world to feel that way. She had every reason in the world to feel that she had been emptied because of what had happened to her. We should not rush over that fact. And the reason I want to just dwell here for a moment is because many of you have already in your life or will at some point in your life find yourself in situations that are truly tragic, unthinkable, difficult circumstances of hardship and suffering. And in those moments, we can feel that we have been abandoned by God. And so I don't want to rush over this. I want us to feel the weight of what Naomi would have felt in that moment, because there are going to be times in your life that you're going to feel that weight. You're going to feel the weight of hopelessness. It's like there's, there's no way out. There is no hope for me. My life is essentially over. There is no path forward. Yet even though she felt that way, hope remained. She just didn't know it quite yet. She just didn't know it quite yet. So let's look at now Naomi's hopelessness. We see this emerging in verses 6 through 14. So let me read that section for us from Ruth chapter 1. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So it is clear that Naomi is filled with a sense of dread 
and hopelessness in these verses. Even though she, she's heard word has come to Moab that the Lord has visited his people and he has provided food for them. The famine is over and they can return to their land. Even though that's true, Naomi is filled with hopelessness on their way back. So even as they're on their way back, Naomi is in despair and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are going back with her. But at some point early, it seems, in their journey, she turns to them and says, look, actually, out of kindness and love toward you, you should not journey back to Bethlehem with me. You see that there in verse 8. Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. What she is saying is you need to go back to your family. You need to stay in Moab, Moab where you have hope of marrying someone. You need to find rest in the future home of your husband as you marry someone there in Moab where you can find contentment and provision there because you're not going to find it if you come with me. You need to find it in the house of your mother back in the land of Moab. She is desperately trying to convince them not to come with her because Naomi is filled with hopelessness. There is no hope if you come with me. So she's, she's wishing and granting and calling on God to, to bless them. The Lord deal kindly with you. She wants, in her view, what is best for them, even though it's a misguided hope to send them to a land of, back to a land of false gods instead of the land of the true God where there's provision and hope. But Naomi is so hopeless she cannot yet see that. So, of course, we see that the daughters-in-law respond and they, they weep and kiss one another and they cry out there in verse 10 and they say, no, we're going we're gonna to stick with you, both of us, Orpah and Ruth at this point. They say, we're going to go with you back to the land of your people. And it's in that moment that Naomi just presses in on the argument and gives them every reason in the world not to join her. You see, the whole theme, or not theme, the whole, uh, the, the pressure that Naomi feels in this moment is that she needs to carry on the family name, but she sees no way forward to be able to do that. You see, this was an essential part of the families of Israel, that the law even provided a way for them to carry on their family name if someone died without a child. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 25 in the law. It will call on uh, the brother of someone who, who uh, uh, if that brother had passed away and his wife did not have a child, then it called on the brother to marry that woman so that they could have children to carry on the family name. This, is a, this may seem strange in our culture, but it was an essential, important part of the life of Israel together that they would carry on the name of their family. And here's Naomi, and she cannot, she just cannot picture or find a way for that to happen, which is why she's making the argument that she makes beginning in verse 11. That, that's why she says things like, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Do I have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? In other words, am I going to give birth to a brother of Malon and Kilion for you to marry and carry on the family name? That's not going to happen. And she says, even if I hoped against hope that right now, this is what she continues to say in verse 12, 
Even if I hoped against hope, and right now, this very night, I found a man, and we got married, and I got pregnant, even if that happened right now, and I got pregnant with a brother that you could, with someone who would be the brother of Malon and Kilion, are you going to wait? Are you going to wait for that child to grow up and not marry until that child's grown up and old enough for you to marry? Naomi's essentially saying to them, you, you're, you're insane. You're crazy if you want to stick with me. There is no reason to stick with me. There is no hope. As Naomi looks around, every human reason she can come up with, there is no conceivable solution. And so she tells them that they just need to stay. And then in verse 13, she takes a step further and she says, It is exceedingly bitter for me, or sorry, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, at one level, we should applaud Naomi for what she is saying. She's acknowledging that God is the one who is in control of all things, that the Lord is indeed the one who gives life and takes life away. But is it true that the hand of the Lord is against her? Is God against her? You see, this is where we need to guard against judging the Lord by feeble sense. Just because someone is facing difficulties or tragedies, just because someone is suffering and enduring hardship, it does not therefore mean that the hand of the Lord is against them. You see, we know the end of the story. We know that God is at work through this tragedy and through this suffering to bring about an extraordinary redemption both in Naomi's life, in Ruth's life, but also in our lives. Because it is through King David that King Jesus would one day come. And it is through King Jesus and his work on the cross that we are a redeemed people. God's not against Naomi in these moments. He is working for her salvation in those moments. But the temptation when we suffer is to think that we have been abandoned by God. is to, just to, to zero in and become self-focused on our suffering and our feelings. And look, I'm not demeaning feelings. Suffering is hard. The Bible calls us to weep with those who weep. We should not make light of suffering and hardship. But even in the midst of hardship, we are reminded that there's hope. Because we have the promises of the New Testament. We have promises that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have promises like Romans chapter 8 verse 28. That God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. Everything that happens in your life. Even though you may not understand it. It doesn't mean I can stand here and give you a reason for the hardship that's happening in your life, but it means that God is working for your eternal and ultimate good. He's working for Naomi's good in the midst of this suffering when she's lost her husband and lost her sons and she feels like God is against her and that he has completely emptied her, yet he's still working for her good. And we're going to see that play out in the rest of this book. We know from Hebrews chapter 13 that we just looked at a few weeks ago, verse 5, that he will never leave us or forsake us. 
When you suffer as a child of God, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, your suffering is not because God has forsaken you. He has promised that he will not forsake you. Let's judge not the Lord by feeble sense. He is at work even in the midst of suffering. And even here, even here in this statement, the author of Ruth gives us this intentional little hint of how God is at work. Because right after, there in verse 13, right after Naomi says that it's bitter for me, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, Orpah and Ruth lift up their voices and they weep. Orpah leaves. But guess what happens? It says at the end of verse 14 that Ruth clings to her. That she clings to her. And that's just one little hint from the author of Ruth to say, Naomi is not in a hopeless situation. I am providing for her through the loyal love of Ruth. And so let's now look at Ruth's loyal love. Look with me at verses 15 through 18. Let's read that together. And she said, she hears Naomi talking to Ruth. And she said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Baruch said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now, those two phrases that Naomi mentions in, in verse 15 are really important. She says, see, your sister-in-law Orpah has gone back to her people and back to her gods. And it's those exact phrases that Ruth refutes in her own life. And you see, the tables turn here because Naomi has been pleading with Ruth and Orpah to go back. And now the tables turn and Ruth says, stop. Now, Ruth is commanding Naomi, essentially says, do not do this anymore. Do not urge me to go back anymore. I'm done with your pleadings. I'm not going anywhere. This is an absolute commitment from Ruth to Naomi. Just, just listen to the language that she uses. You see there in verse, at the end of verse 16, your people shall be my people and your God my God. This is staggering language. Remember, this is a Moabite woman who had been worshiping false gods, who had been raised in a home that would have worshiped false gods. But apparently, even in the midst of the disobedient journey to Moab by Limelech's family, even in the disobedience of Malon and Kilion marrying Moabite women, God used it to redeem Ruth. God used their family to teach her about the faithfulness of this God of Israel to, to help her to see the glories of this God and this, the people to which she was returning. So at this point, she now wants their people to be her people. She wants their God to be her God. Now listen, young people, this is not 
a defense of missionary dating, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't date someone who's not a believer in hopes that they're going to become a believer, right? That's what they did was wrong. Malon and Kilihan marrying these Moabite women was wrong, but it doesn't mean that God can't redeem sinful actions for the glory of his name. And that's what he did. And he used those marriages, he used those relationships to redeem Ruth. And she now has faith in the God of Israel. She wants uh, uh, Naomi's people to be her people. She wants Naomi's God to be her God. And in fact, this, this language that's used throughout this section is what we would typically think of as marriage language. Do you see that in verse 17? Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. In fact, the word that's used in verse 14, when it says Ruth clung to her, that word clung is the same word that's used in Genesis to talk about the man leaving his family and clinging to his wife. This is a overwhelming commitment from Ruth to Naomi. And notice how important it is that Ruth is not saying to Naomi, look, I'm going to go back with you to your land, take care of you, help you get settled. Once I feel like you're settled, I'm going to go back home. Now, what does she say? She says, I'm going and I'm staying. And you're probably going to die before me. But even if you die, I'm staying put. Where they bury you is where they're going to put me. Right? This is overwhelming, loyal love from Ruth to Naomi. Side of marriage. Imagine someone communicating to you this kind of commitment to you outside of marriage. Right? They just look at you and say, look, I'm not going anywhere. I know you're in a moment of desperation that all hope seems to be lost, but I want you to know I am by your side every step of the way, even though I have no idea how God's going to work this out. I have no idea how God's going to provide for us. I have no idea how we're going to eat tomorrow. I have no idea how any of this is going to happen. But what I do know is that I want your God to be my God, and I'm going with you, Naomi. I mean, this should have been such a humbling moment for Naomi. These words tell us that God is not against Naomi. He has not, in fact, left her with nothing. There is a foreign Moabite woman who refuses to leave her side, even if that means she has to leave behind everything that she knows and is familiar with. Right? What a gift of God's grace to Naomi. But Naomi is so lost in her hopelessness that she cannot even begin to see it. She cannot understand what it is that God is doing. Naomi simply sees hopelessness, yet God is working his faithfulness. And so... Ruth with Naomi returns to Bethlehem. And this brings us to the fourth section, a misunderstanding of providence. Look with me at verses 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Ruth and Naomi make it back to Bethlehem. They come, the town is stirred up about rumors about this Naomi that's been gone for at least 10 years. Could this possibly be her? Now, remember, Naomi didn't have an Instagram account, right? She wasn't like, we're, we're eating in Moab. Like, you know, this is how life is going. They had no idea what happened to her and her family. They didn't have a clue. There was no communication. And then all of a sudden, at least a decade later, Naomi shows up, but there's no Elimelech. There's no Malon, there's no Kilion, there's no family. It's this older woman who's coming back with this younger lady. Is this her? Who is this? What's happening? And so they ask, is, is it Naomi? Is this Naomi? And she says in verse 20, don't call me by that name. Now, most of your Bibles probably have a footnote there, but if not, I'll, I'll tell you that the name Naomi means pleasant. And Naomi says, don't, don't call me pleasant. I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara. And again, the footnote, if you have it in your Bible, says that means bitterness. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And then Naomi just piles on what she sees as God's uh, judgment against her. She says at the end of verse 20, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, we said there is, there is truth in what Naomi is saying. We, we don't want to deny that. The Lord is the one who brought this tragedy into Naomi's life. We should not breeze by that or claim that that's not the case. Job 1.21 tells us the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. This was the Lord's doing. He did bring tragedy and hardship to Naomi's life. That is certainly true. But to say that the Lord is against her is simply not true. You see, Naomi misunderstands what God is doing here. That, that God is providentially working in her life and she cannot see it because all she can see is her human reason that she's trying to come up with for how she can find a solution to this situation. So while she recognizes that God is control, she doesn't recognize that she, in fact, is not empty. And that brings us to the final section, the reasons for hope that we have in verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, the reason I love verse 22 is because we finally get the divine perspective on the events that have been taking place. 
You see, the vast majority of chapter one leading up to this point has been all dialogue between Naomi and Orpah and Ruth or between Naomi and Ruth or Ruth to Naomi. All we've gotten is the human perspective. All we've gotten is Naomi's perspective. And here in verses 19 through 21, we have Naomi's perspective in this dialogue with uh, the, the people of the, of the town of Bethlehem. But then here in verse 22 comes the narrator. Here in verse 22 comes the words of the author of Ruth. And what does the divinely inspired author of Ruth say about this situation? Well, the author says, Naomi returned. So Paul's there. She made it back safely to her home. She returned with Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab. I mean, the author is piling on how unlikely it is that she would have this loyal woman with her, right? This Moabite woman was loyally committed to her. This is God's grace and kindness to her. She is not empty. Ruth is with her, faithfully loving her. And not only that, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The famine is over and hope reigns new. And even as there's evidence all around her for why she should be grateful, I'm not saying that she shouldn't be grieving the loss of her sons. She should be. But you can grieve with hope. You can grieve with gratitude. And Naomi refuses to see the goodness and kindness of God to her even in the midst of her suffering. But that's the divine perspective on the events of Naomi's life. That even in the midst of her tragedy, of losing her husband, of losing her sons, of being destitute and hopeless in a foreign land, God has given her a daughter-in-law who loves her with absolute devotion. And it is through that loyal love that God will bring about the restoration of the family of Elimelech. And we're going to see that develop throughout as Ruth comes upon the field of Boaz and marries him and has a child who would eventually bring about King David. You see, what we see in chapter one is the divine perspective. We see God operating as he so often does. God's pattern in the Old Testament is to put his people up against a wall of impossibility. <laughs> to put them in a position where they cannot see any possible solution to the situation. He wants them desperate and crying out for help so that he can come in and show his glory and his power by rescuing and redeeming as only he can. That's why God operates the way that he does because he wants to get the glory that he deserves. He doesn't want man to be in position to be able to give the glory to themselves. He wants it for himself because he alone deserves it. And so here they are in a seemingly impossible situation and yet the divine the divine perspective tells us that God is not done with Naomi 
You know, it reminds me of the other, one of the other events that happens in the days of the judges when Gideon gathers up his army to go against the Midianites. And Gideon gathers up 32,000 men to take down the Midianites. An army that Judges describes as numerous as the sands on the shore, this Midianite army. And Gideon musters up 32,000 men. And God says, that's too many. And so they get rid of 20,000 men. And so now they're down to, uh, sorry, they get rid of 22,000 men. And so now they're down to about 10,000. And God says to Gideon, yeah, that's still not going to do. If you go there with 10,000 men, you're going to take the credit for yourself. That's too many, Gideon. It's too many. So go have these guys drink some water out of the river. And if a certain portion of them drink a certain way, that's the portion I want you to keep. And so he goes from 10,000 to 300 men. And God says, that will seem impossible enough. Let's go. And so Gideon takes 300 men to fight an army as numerous as the sands on the shore. And God brings the victory. Because God wants the glory He didn't want the 10,000 men getting the glory. He didn't want the 32,000 men getting the glory. And God is doing the same thing here. There is no solution that Naomi could come up with. Every human reason says this ought to be hopeless. But when God's on the scene, when God's at work, there is no hopelessness. And he is redeeming his people even in the midst of tragedy and suffering. And it's exactly what God did through the cross. When it seemed that there was no way that you and I could ever be redeemed because we are born in sin. We are born in sin. We are born with a sin nature. Every part of our nature is bent toward rebellion against God, followed by more rebellion against God. We are born with a nature that wants nothing to do with God. That's what Romans chapter 3 teaches us. We are hopeless. And even when we try to do good things, we do it in sinful ways because we want attention on ourselves because we are prideful people and we do it for the fame of our own name because moment by moment of our lives go by and we don't give God the glory that he deserves. We bring it on ourselves. We are a, by nature, selfish, sinful, rebellious people. And we deserve eternal condemnation because of it. So what in the world is, how would we ever be saved from such a situation? It is hopelessness piled on top of hopelessness. And thousands of years, literally, the Old Testament is thousands of years of history to prove the point. You're never going to get it right. You're just going to keep rebelling over and over and over and over again. I can give you my law. I can make a mountain tremble when I bring it. I can bring you prophets and miracles and part a Red Sea. I can do all of this. I can bring people back from the dead. None of it matters. You still pursue your sin. And so even in the midst of the impossibility, God makes a way. And he sent the divine, eternal, glorious Son of God to take on flesh and to become one of us. 
and to live a perfect righteous life in your place because none of us could ever do it on our own. And Jesus then willingly laid down his life on the cross and suffered in our place and took the Father's wrath on himself so that we would not have to face the wrath that we all deserved. And even in the hopelessness of the darkness of the death of Jesus Christ as his dead body laid in the grave, God still wasn't done. And he raised Jesus from the grave on the third day. And he was resurrected to power and to glory so that we one day with him could be resurrected to glory. So that one day we too will have glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And then Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand where he right now is interceding for us and praying for us and caring for all who trust in him so that we will be safely delivered to the last day where we will be joined with him forevermore. God loves working through seemingly impossible situations. He did it on the cross, and he'll do it in the life of everyone who belongs to Jesus. He is at work for your good and for the glory of his name, even when hope seems lost. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your kindness, for your overwhelming and abundant love toward us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would learn uh, from the book of Ruth what it means to trust in you, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of suffering, that you have not, in fact, forsaken your people, that you are, in fact, at work for our good and for the glory of your name. Father, I pray the evidence that is abundant in the book of Ruth would overwhelm us over these next weeks and that you would equip us and make us ready to suffer well as those who do not give up on hoping in you. Father, we are thankful for the redeeming work of Christ that even when all hope was lost, you sent him to die in our place to redeem us and to make a people for yourself. And so even as we turn our attention to communion this morning, I pray that we would be reminded of the depths of this truth, of what you have accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.